Hello, and welcome to Line One, your health connection. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. The thyroid is a small butterfly-shaped gland at the base of the neck. It can be hypoactive or hyperactive and can produce nodules. Most nodules are not serious and do not cause symptoms, but a small percentage of thyroid nodules can be cancerous. Today on Line One, we are going to explore the diagnosis and treatment of thyroid nodules and cancer with general surgeon Dr. John Muffaletto. Please give us a call toll-free statewide at 1-888-353-5752, in Anchorage, 550-8433, 550-8433, or you can email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. Well, Dr. Muffaletto, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Good morning. For our regular listeners, you may remember Dr. Muffaletto did a show with us about two years ago now, a really good show on hernias. So feel free to go back and listen to that one. But today we have him for thyroid. And I want to give our listeners who haven't heard Dr. Muffaletto before um, a little bit of an introduction and um, um uh, John, if um, can I call you John? Is that okay? Absolutely. <laughs> John, if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, um, kind of how you got to Alaska and your and your practice here, that would be wonderful. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I've been in, in Anchorage, Alaska now for almost twenty two years, and uh, kind of a switch of extreme in climates as I trained in Las Vegas, Nevada, and then found an interest here uh, for my practice in Alaska and when I moved never turned back really has been a wonderful experience for both uh, the medical community and my family and so I've enjoyed it a lot um, yeah as a general surgeon started fairly broad given my training and then really focused over the years to uh, a couple of specialties and one of which is endocrine surgery, and then we'll talk a little, uh, much more about that today, just one part, the thyroid gland. But uh, I do um, a lot of minimal invasive surgery, as you know, on the website, robotic surgery. So hernia reconstruction is one of my specialties as well. Excellent, excellent. Well, let's, uh, before we get into the abnormal, um, I like to always start kind of with the normal uh, anatomy of a gland or organ or whatever we're discussing. So um, why don't you give our listeners kind of a rundown of what the thyroid gland is from an anatomic standpoint. We can also then go into to function too. Sure. So the thyroid gland is an endocrine gland found in your neck. And uh, as you have described it in your introduction, a butterfly type picture, meaning that it has two lobes, a left and a right lobe connected by a central isthmus. Uh, sometimes it uh, also has a pyramidal lobe coming up from the isthmus connection. You know, these uh, glands maybe weigh about four grams in weight, you know, bilaterally, maybe about three to four centimeters in size. Um, and the anatomy, it hugs the trachea. Um, a lot of important structures there in the neck and nerves, mm -hmm. uh, involved in small little other parathyroid glands next to it. But that would be the normal anatomic picture of, uh, of what a thyroid gland may look like. Okay. 
And um, so let's go into the very important functions of the thyroid gland. Yeah, it's uh, pretty key. I mean, it, it's uh, uh, the uh, most important as far as metabolism in your body. So um, it's a very uh, delicate uh, feedback loop as far as how the thyroid gland functions and keeps its function normally. It produces thyroid hormone. Um, it actually gets signals from the pituitary gland superior, uh, and that has a very delicate, intricate feedback system in itself. And uh, it's a way of uh, homeostatic keeping things in check and having normal thyroid levels throughout the body. These thyroid hormones, um, T4 and T3, uh, are responsible for almost everything in kind of our metabolism, our digestion, our heart rate, our brain function, our skin, sweating, reflexes, muscle activity, um, pretty important little butterfly-shaped organ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the pituitary lives in the brain, and so there's this entire you know endocrine access always going on where the brain's talking to the thyroid and the thyroid's talking back to the pituitary, and there's any number of things that can go wrong with that access. Correct. It's just a matter of what the feedback loop is and what the levels of the thyroid hormone in and the stimulating hormone. You know, it's very, very complicated, but mechanically it's uh, sound and basic that, you know, that most people could understand when you're trying to explain it to them. Yeah, yeah. So when we when we talk about nodules, um, and there's a, there's a lot of different questions. We're going to go further into um, you know how to diagnose these and all the tests and whatnot. But in its most basic form, what how would you describe um, someone that came to your office, you know, or maybe was referred for a thyroid nodule? Right. So part of your physical examination as a physician is a neck examination and. Uh, you know, we should be feeling people's necks, and within that is the thyroid gland, which you should be able to feel, which is normally smooth, moves up and down when you swallow, of normal size, get a feel for what a normal thyroid gland would be, and then you can pick up what these abnormal lumps within the thyroid that can grow, which are nodules. Um, you know, similar to what a prostate exam would be. You know, you have to feel what that nodule is and feel what the nodule is in the neck. And these nodules, um, why they occur, still a little bit even unclear as of today, but, the, you know, probably the most predominant theory would be a genetic, you know, disposition of a gene mutates, gets turned on, and then starts growing abnormally into a lump, uh, for which we call nodule, we can have uh, genetic uh, causes, iodine deficiencies, uh, radiation exposure. All of that can contribute to the potential of nodules developing and growing. Got it. Okay. And for our listeners out there, I just wanted to give you the call-in number one more time, 888-353-5752. Eight 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 three five three five seven five two in Anchorage five five zero eight four three three five five zero eight four three three. I'm also responding to your emails at line one at alaskapublic.org. 
So, Dr. Maffaletto, um, many times these are uh, nodules are don't cause any symptoms, and and maybe they're just um, uh, can be felt or seen. How does that presentation um, generally happen? Yeah, so nodules are are common. They're, you know, they're not a common, they're not, they're not an uncommon occurrence. So you need to kind of figure out which one of those nodules are bad actors and which one are good. Now, fortunately, 90% of them are benign and are not clinically relevant. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you're not supposed to correctly work these up and not take them medically seriously. You don't want to miss 7 to 10% of something that could be a problem. Mm -hmm. So we have pretty defined protocols now as to how you follow a nodule and which ones to be aggressive with and which ones not to. Um, you know, so most of these nodules, uh, like you said, are picked up either from a routine examination uh, on physical examination, or it could be from an imaging study, either a CAT scan or an MRI or an ultrasound, that you're doing for other reasons, for either, let's just say, neck pain, and you're being worked up with that, and then all of a sudden you find an incidental finding of a thyroid nodule. That's a very common uh, way, because it's hard for a clinician to pick up a thyroid nodule less than one centimeters in size in a, uh, you know, a um, pretty robust neck, unless someone's very thin. But uh, so that's difficult on sometimes clinical examination if you're not used to feeling that thyroid to pick that up. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a very, it's a challenging exam. Um, as, and it, they can be very, very subtle. Um, and especially if there's extra tissue around the neck, like you said, a bigger neck, yeah. it's very sometimes difficult to even feel the thyroid at all. Yeah. So yes, you do have true. to rely. So but th so while most of these can be non-symptomatic or maybe they're picked up incidentally or they're felt or they're big enough to be seen, um, there's another percentage of nodules that present because someone's having symptoms. And they're not always linked to the thyroid right away. But what would be some of the symptoms that you could see from a from a nodule. Yeah, so let's classify the nodule um, once it is found or felt, or even if it's someone's having some clinic, clinical symptoms or scenario and you don't know why they're having it, and all of a sudden uh, a thyroid nodule is found because you did some tests. So the nodule could be what we call cold or hot. So the cold nodule means it's just a nodule that's perhaps they're staying there or growing in size, and it's not symptomatic, meaning it's not producing hormone. Then you have the hot nodule, which is a nodule that's metabolically active, and that's a nodule that will be producing thyroid hormone on its own. It's kind of going rogue. It's not listening to the biofeedback mechanisms to say, stop, we have too much of the thyroid hormone. So it just kind of keeps doing its own thing. So then someone would then be symptomatic. And the symptomatic of a hyperthyroidism would be, you know, heart palpitations, uh, sweatiness, hyperreflections of the muscle of twitching, um, temperature, hot, 
cold swings. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that, people, an anxiety feeling, uh, kind of an anxious sort of feeling. Um, that's pretty, uh, a, you know, a presentation that would uh, really stand out and then now for the clinician to find out, okay, why is that going on? And the first thing you would think of would be metabolism and then thyroid, and then now you check the thyroid function tests, which is the thyroid-stimulating hormone and the T3 and the T4, and you would have an abnormally high uh, T4 level and you know and a low TSH level, and that would say, okay, now you have a hyperfunctioning type of gland. Is it because the gland itself is hyperfunctioning, or now do you have a nodule that's hyperfunctioning? And an ultrasound would then help you with that. Okay, so let's let's take a let's take a step back, and someone's having. Um, potentially some vague symptoms. Um, well, I guess what you mentioned a lot was the the symptoms of hyperthyroidism, mm-hmm. so hi, uh, high functioning thyroid. What would be the opposite? What would be hypothyroidism? Right. So hypo would uh, pretty much be the gland itself is not producing enough thyroid hormone. Uh, and there are conditions that would be along. So this, to answer your questions, the symptoms would be just the obverse. It would be a low heart rate. It would be weight gain. It would be um, persons cold all the time, um, uptunded, um, tired, no energy level, um, uh, ha- even hair loss. All that could be signs of hypothyroidism. And so, you know, a lot of times these are vague symptoms or they're not really all put together mm-hmm. and not everybody has all of the symptoms. But let's go through a little bit of the diagnosis and we'll, we'll start first with the lab work um, because one thing, a primary care or really most of us do with an annual lab work, it would be a, a TSH or a thyroid uh, stimulating hormone. So, um that has some, you know, many different questions about mm-hmm. it just by itself. But tell us about the TSH and the feedback. Yeah, so that's in a, in a routine annual examination, that's going to be part of the lab criteria that your clinician gets along with, you know, a lipid profile or things like that. The clinician's always going to get a thyroid panel. And within the thyroid panel, really, it's a thyroid-stimulating hormone uh, and then there's the the actual thyroid hormones themselves uh, coming from the thyroid gland, which is a T4 and a T3. So again, uh, could get a little bit complicated, but the you know it starts always from the pituitary. So the mechanism so that's the thyroid releasing factor, and then that stimulates thyroid stimulating hormone, and then the thyroid stimulating hormone then goes to the thyroid gland to stimulate the that gland to release T4, T3 into the system. And then the blood system, as we start to either get high or low levels of the thyroid hormone, that's a feedback loop that then will go back to the pituitary and it's saying, okay, we got too much of this. Let's stop doing our thyroid releasing factor. And then, so it kind of controls it in this biofeedback loop. Um, interestingly, um, the thyroid, the th- T4 and the T3, um, most of uh, what the thyroid puts out is T4, um, probably about 80%, and then 20% maybe T3. What's active in the body is T3, and so there's a conversion 
of T4 in uh, different, cent different organs within the body. It could be brain, kidney, liver. And then that would convert the T4 to T3, which is all this sort of active stuff. What we do and what we like to measure is the T4 because that gives us a healthy look at what the thyroid gland is producing since 80% would be the, the T4 hormone. Sure. Okay. And so if you had TSH abnormalities or you picked up um, you know, examination findings, what would be the first and, and potentially best um, imaging study that your clinician would get? Ultrasound uh, undoubtedly would be the, the go-to test. It's relatively cheap in relation to some of the sophisticated tests, and it's great for looking at the thyroid gland itself, the size, um, and it also looks at uh, potential abnormalities, which would be the nodules, whether they be singular or multiple uh, and then it, it gives very specific characteristics of those nodules, which turn out to be important in how to handle them. Sure. Okay. Well, we're going to take our first mid-break there, and then we'll go into a little bit about those characteristics that could prompt us to do further testing. You are listening to Line 1, your health connection. If you have a question or a comment for our guest today, give us a call statewide at one 553 1-888-353-5752 or in Anchorage at 550-8433, 550-8433. After the short break, we'll continue our discussion on thyroid nodules and cancer with surgeon Dr. John Muffaletto. You're listening to Line 1 from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line 1 on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to start accelerating your child's future through education? The Alaska Native Science and Engineering Program is expanding its reach with new opportunities in Juneau and Southeast Alaska. With ANSEP's Acceleration Academy, high school students can earn college credit, save thousands of dollars in college costs, and experience fun, hands-on learning. ANSEP, it's a better way to learn. Learn more and enroll at ansep.net slash acceleration. This message sponsored by ANSEP. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. I'm joined by General Surgeon Dr. John Muffaletto, and we are discussing thyroid nodules and thyroid cancer. Call us toll-free statewide, 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, in Anchorage at 550-8433. 550-8433, or email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. Okay, Dr. Muffaletto, we were talking about lab work and the TSH, uh, and then we got into ultrasound. Now, um, 
Let me ask you, I guess, what um, what would be some of the factors on an ultrasound that may be concerning? Yeah, so the ultrasound, you know, the modality uses just sound frequency to take a look at what the nodule appearances are. So uh, one would be the size itself, you know, so nodules that are uh, greater than 1.5 centimeters in size without any other characteristics would prompt some sort of action. And then within the nodule, you can see, are there microcalcifications, um, which are abnormal proteins precipitated out of themselves, um, coarse calcifications. Uh, what does the nodule look like? Uh, so if it is um, wider than it is tall, things like that uh, may be a little bit concerning. Uh, are the borders irregular? Um, does it have this classic halo effect to it, which may represent some compression around the thyroid nodule? Uh, is there vascular invasion on the Doppler part of the ultrasound? All of these would prompt, uh, um, let's say, a biopsy or a concern of a thyroid nodule rather than it just being smooth and everything else normal. Okay. And then what about a cyst versus like something more solid? Is that right? So the cyst would have different characteristics on ultrasound. Um, you know, the cyst being more hyper echoic, it wouldn't have any uh, posterior acoustic shadowing. Um, and that's just a simple fluid filled cavity within that nodule itself for the most part, would be benign if it's a simple cyst. But cysts can have solid components to it. And as that solid component then gets to about a level of 1.5 centimeters and then starts having other little things to it, it would be more uh, prominent and then more worrisome where you would want to biopsy that if it's no longer falling into the category of simple cysts. Okay. And then what about something called a thyroid scan? What, what's that and when would that be used? You know, the thyroid scan is becoming probably less popular uh, in the toolbox, but, you know, that would look at if something is hyperactive. Uh, so, uh, you know, either a hyperactive nodule or hot nodule or uh, somebody has uh, Graves' disease or uh, uh, toxic multinodular goiter, all of those which would imply a hyperactive type of profile, uh, then you would you want to get a radioactive iodine scan to see what's lighting up, um, to see which areas of the thyroid are indeed hyperactive. Is the entire gland hyperactive? Because then that would guide you in probably your therapy of what you want to do. Uh, you know, the radioactive iodine scan could be both diagnostic and it could be therapeutic. So you can use this radioactive iodine to potentially uh, ablate something within the thyroid gland given higher doses. Okay, interesting. So let's say that you have someone that comes to your office and they have an ultrasound, um, you know, that shows a potentially suspicious nodule. Um, what would be the next real, you know, test of choice for you to do and, and maybe describe um, sort of how that's done? Right. 
So the ultrasound characteristics, as well as physical examination, how the how the patient is presenting. So you know, let's not forget physical exam as well. If that you know they have dysphonia or change in voice, and um, your examination would show a uh, hardness or firmness to what you're feeling in the neck. And then you couple that with the ultrasound characteristics like we talked about. What's the size? What's the rate of growth if you can follow this over time, which is also very important. And some of those other things we talked about, predominantly the go-to test would be a fine needle aspiration. Um, it's a relatively simple thing um, uh, done under ultrasound guidance. And then you can put multiple passes of a fine needle through the nodule itself and then send that off for uh, cytology and now, uh, you know, bi biological markers are becoming very predominant in helping us determine what this nodule abnormality is. Great. So this is a procedure that you can kind of just do in the office or some people, you know, can do in the office with an ultrasound. Right. Um, you know, Depending on what you read, you know, a long time ago, some people would still be blindly putting the needle in. And, you know, that is okay, um, you know, if you don't have these sort of modalities and where it is you're practicing. But I would think the more and more kind of standard of care would be under ultrasound guidance to kind of see the nodule going through, especially if the nodules are small. Something that's very big and gross uh, could be done uh, with just a fine needle. But you can use these ultrasounds in your office, and, uh, you know, they're portable now, and uh, that would be the, uh, the way to, you know, biopsy this and take pictures of your needle going through the nodule mm -hmm. to confirm that it's a good biopsy. Now, if someone has multiple nodules or nodules on either side, do you do an FNA on on all of them? Or <laughs> I mean, sometimes people might have you know five or six nodules. Yeah, it's difficult. No, the answer is no. Okay. Um, you don't put the needle. Uh, I mean, a lot of people have a lot of nodules. So um, again. Um, Statistically, it becomes a little bit more difficult, uh, but you have to stick with the radiological guidelines and kind of figure out which nodules within this multinodular type gland you want to biopsy. Um, maybe two you'd be biopsying, which would be most suspicious uh, at a time. And then perhaps you would need to biopsy another nodule at a later time as long as everything still is benign. But it, to answer your question, it is, it's definitely more difficult. And you can't be sticking needles in all these nodules over a period of time. And that's when the discussion of surgery may you know, come into play. Okay. And we're going we're gonna to get into you know that biopsy showing cancer uh, next. But what are... What are the possibilities um, of the non-cancerous nodule? What what would be on your uh, potential diagnosis menu for something non-cancerous from an FMA? Yeah, so there's a you know Bethesda. There are a lot of different classifications, but the Bethesda classification again is the most common that rates them from one to six, and so something that's benign 
would be a very uh, typical uh, colloid-type nodule, a follicular lesion, um, uh, where, you know, we didn't go into the anatomy itself, but, the you know, these nodules most likely have these little lobules when you look at them under the microscope and what they're comprised of. So that would be the most common, would be a benign follicular colloid lesion, uh, which would fall into, you know, category two benign. Uh, that would be probably most of the things that you would see. Okay. And then, um, so other things that you may see from a benign standpoint, uh, that would that be an adenoma or considered an adenoma or is that something different? Yes, that like, would be considered an adenoma, like okay. a lot of different polyps that you'd find in the, in the body, adenoma. Okay. And what about goiter? What's a... What's a goiter or multinodular goiter? You mentioned that. Yeah. How is that a little so, bit different? Right. So the goiter uh, could be just a generalized enlargement of the thyroid gland. So there are different reasons why the thyroid gland would get enlarged. But for the most part, I think of it as coming down to what conditions will give you a constant thyroid-stimulating hormone state. So, you know, is the, the gland, uh, you know, worldwide an iodine deficiency? Let's put it that way in your environment. That's probably the most common worldwide reason for goiter. Not in, not in North America, but um, when you have an iodine deficiency in your diet in, in some of the third world countries, a lot of people will have a constantly elevated thyroid stimulating hormone level, which is constantly working on the thyroid gland to produce more but it can't because it doesn't have the thyroid, it doesn't have the iodine to couple within thyroglobulin to do all this. So now you get this enlarged, in general, enlargement of the thyroid gland goiter. Um, you know, now within the goiter, you can have nodules. Um, and now you have the definition of multinodular goiter. And then within those nodules, some of them could be hyperactive. And then you can have you know, a toxic multinodular goiter, or you can have an enlarged symmetric thyroid goiter, which would typically now be something called Graves' disease, where the whole thyroid gland is hyperactive and enlarged. Okay. All right. So um, I have, before we go into the, the different cancer diagnoses, let's, um, Joan has an uh, email question for us. She writes, um, the, her thyroid norm, excuse me, her thyroid numbers are all within normal range except something called the TPO, AB antibody is 147 when the normal range is uh, 0 to 34. And she says her research suggests this might be causing damage to her thyroid, but her specialist says, don't worry, every, everything, is, everything is normal. Um, so her question kind of is, is my thyroid being destroyed or not? Um, I don't know if you're able to answer this one, um, John, but also you know, maybe describe what TPO is for the listeners. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, um, that would probably be fielded most better by a, an endocrinologist, you sure. know, these thyroid peroxidase type of antibodies. The most common thing that I come into play with would, would be thyroglobulin antibody, which is a little bit different, I think, than what the, what the listener is going to. But the thyroglobulin, again, produced uh, by the thyroid gland itself can, in this body, have these antibodies, thyroglobulin antibodies. Uh, 
And it's not attacking the thyroid gland or destroying it, but it's obscuring uh, our clinical tests of what it is we like to measure thyroglobulin with. So thyroglobulin, typically we would measure with thyroid cancer. It gives a, an, an idea of rate of growth of thyroid, the, um, the presence of thyroid. And after surgery, when we remove a thyroid, then now we start measuring levels of thyroglobulin. If you have thyroglobulin antibodies, now that clinical level is obscured and not accurate. Probably not exactly what the, the listener is, is going for, but that would be something that I would, uh, as, a th as a thyroid surgeon, be uh, most interested in when I'm ordering tests. I would, I would order a thyroglobin antibody to the panel. Okay. So maybe um, for further reference on that, Jonah, if your specialist is an endocrinologist, those would be the doctors that would have the most um, uh, specialized knowledge of, of the thyroid, non-surgical, of course. Um, Dr. Buffalo, let's go into the FNA results being uh, cancerous. Or, or let's say that, you know, what features of a biopsy would come back that would concern you? And, and I know there's a, there's a laundry list of different <laughs> types of cancer that it can be. And, and we have time to, you know, go through those a little bit in more detail. But let's start just with, with the, you know, the, the cancerous or precancerous cells that come back with an FNA. Yeah. So the FNA findings, uh, we touched on it a little bit, have these one through six classifications, and they're important to kind of figure out which ones that you want to, are, are worrisome perhaps, which ones are not. Um, so, you know, the FNA one is, would be that you didn't get enough material in your specimen. So non-diagnostic, you would probably have to repeat it. FNA two that would come back would be benign. We talked about, say, a follicular, colloid, nothing, uh, no, no atypia to the cells. And now the confusing issue would be levels three and four. So if you have a what's called a follicular lesion indeterminate or an atypical lesion indeterminate, that would be three, meaning that the cells look a little bit abnormal. Normally, statistically, this is going to be normal, but we're not quite sure. Uh, do we want to miss the three to seven percent that are, mm -hmm. you know, that are abnormal? So that's a little bit unclear. And then four becomes a little bit even more muddier as it now falls into the class of follicular neoplasm or an atypical neoplasm or herthal cell neoplasm which some people refer to as, as oncocytic neoplasm. Again, a little bit of a higher rate of atypia within that lesion, a little bit of a higher rate, 10% chance, 12% chance of it perhaps being a cancer. Um, five would be suspicious for malignancy, much more serious, and then six would be the no-brainer malignancy. Sure. So those are the... Bethesdic sort of categorization that you would get from a fine needle uh, aspiration. And as surgeons and thyroid endocrinologists, we've been struggling with 
these categories three and four for decades mm -hmm. of what to do with those. How do we handle those? You know, so a lot of, as a surgeon going back years, much more aggressive, we just don't know, so we take it out. And, you know, predominantly they would be benign and then you would get the 7% or 10% that would be cancerous. Sure. So it's an individual discussion, really. It sounds like five and six is pretty much, okay, Yeah. let's get this out. One and two, just keep an eye on it. Yep. And then the real medical, you know, the practice of medicine comes in with three and four. Right, right. And we can discuss it now or later, however you want. But the, but the, what has come on the scene uh, really since uh, uh, 2010, 2000, uh, 2012 have, these, have been these biological markers. So each one of these nodules carry uh, a receptor and a biological marker as a lot of different cancers in the body do. And I mean, when we look at this, whether they be the RET marker, um, uh, the PTC marker, all these little different things the BRCA marker, um, all these things that give us a risk categorization or classification on now are these lesions starting to act more malignant or benign? Sure. And that really has been helping us out in this three and four category. Sure. I imagine it, it you know, when you have a discussion with patients, you say, okay, this fell into category four based on all of this knowledge and all of this stuff that we have currently you know there's a 10 percent this could be you know a cancer and then the question is well does the patient think 10 percent is a high number yeah. or do they think it's a low number and that's a personal decision yeah it's scary you know? i mean when you start using cancer i mean for many people any percent of could be that they you know that could overwhelm people so we try to get as much information as we can. I don't like guessing. I like to be precise, mm -hmm. especially when you're talking about surgery. So every time we do a biopsy, it's sent for two things. It's sent for cytopathology, which is those categories which we've just described, one through six, and then it's sent for biological markers. There's been a whole bunch of companies that have tried to uh, evolve with this, but predominantly uh, the company out in San Francisco, Verisite, uses the Affirma gene testing, and that has come to the forefront uh, where they, we send that off. Every nodule that we biopsy goes for Affirma gene testing and cytopathology, and we try to use that information then to make a decision whether to do something surgically or follow it. Okay. So let's let's get into surgery a little bit. We have about, um, well, gosh, you know what, Tobin? I think we should probably take our second break here, and then we'll finish up with uh, surgery. So you are listening to Line 1, Your Health Connection. If you have a question or a comment for our guest today, call us statewide, 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, or in Anchorage, 550-8433. Five five zero eight four three three. After this short break, we'll continue our discussion on thyroid nodules and thyroid cancer with surgeon Dr. John Muffaletto. 
You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strong Hearts Native Helpline is a free 24-7 confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Alaska Natives. Help is available by calling or texting 1-844-7-NATIVE or using the chat icon at strongheartshelpline.org. This message is sponsored by the Strong Hearts Native Helpline. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. I'm joined by general surgeon Dr. John Muffaletto, and we are discussing thyroid nodules and cancer. Call us toll-free statewide, 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, in Anchorage, 550-8433, 550-8433. Or email us at line one at alaskapublic.org. Also, just a quick uh, message to our listeners Line One will be taking a summer break for four weeks in July and August. We'll return with more health related conversations on August 24th. You can still tune in Wednesdays to hear a special airing of local podcasts, Mental Health Mosaics. Well, Dr. Muffaletto, let's spend the rest of our time here talking about cancer and about surgery. Um, you know, we talked a lot about the biopsies. So let's say that we have a biopsy that's concerning for cancer, maybe, you know, number five or six. What's, uh, what do you, I guess when you're talking about surgery with someone, what do you tell them about surgery on the thyroid? And we can talk about, you know, partial thyroids, full thyroids. What's the, what's the discussion entail? Well, I think it's important for the patient to understand that uh, thyroid cancer is overwhelmingly most of the time curative. And I think that's when someone hears the word cancer, um, it's very frightening. And I think as a surgeon, you just need to use your experience in telling them, uh, which a lot of the times you don't have the luxury when you start speaking about cancer, that this is going to be a curative problem uh, for you, which is uh, good right off the bat for the patient to hear. Because uh, in many of these type of cancers, whether it be papillae follicular, uh, which are the two most common type of cancers, um, depending on the age of the patient, they're 99%, 100% curative. So that's, that's, imp that's important yeah. for them to understand. Um, and then, you know, each one of these little nodules is individual. Um, they have, you know, their own little surgical plan. And even, I have to say, it's um, in 2022, some of these surgical plans can be different, um, especially when you're talking about, let's talk about papillary thyroid cancer, still the most common type of thyroid cancer in the United States. Uh, the surgical approach to papillary thyroid cancer uh, still is different because the literature is not clear-cut. Um, one, it's, it's curative, mm -hmm. and so there are different ways to handle it. Uh, so if you have a one-centimeter uh, papillary thyroid cancer, um, you may get um, a handful of surgeons that would just remove the lobe 
of where the thyroid nodule is, and then you would get a handful of surgeons that would remove the entire thyroid gland. Um, so and either one would be acceptable, and either one has their rationale. Um, so when you start talking about cancer, you have to look at the entire gland, first of all, and make sure if there's not any nodules on the other side, that plays into account. Um, and then you have to kind of figure out how you're going to manage your patient after surgery. How are you going to treat them? And that plays into uh, account as far as if you want to just remove a lobe or the entire gland. You would never remove just the nodule. Uh, so the surgical decision-making, there are there's more than two types, but let's just say for the most part, it's either removing the lobe that has the abnormal thyroid nodule or removing the entire gland. Okay. And as we talked about the anatomy before, there's kind of a right side, there's a left side. When you, so when you say lobe, you're meaning the right side or the left side of the gland essentially. Correct. And what would, um, well, what would prompt you if someone had a, a, a nodule, say, on one side on the right lobe um, to either just take out the lobe or to take out the whole thing. Because the, the post-operative course yeah. is very different, you know, if you have no thyroid gland versus still having half. Right, right. So, you know, those papillary, uh, uh, the, the papillary type is the one that's sort of still up for decision-making. Um, you know, so I, for papillary thyroid cancers, you know, greater than 1.5 centimeters in size, I would do a total thyroidectomy. And um, I think probably most surgeons would probably do that as well. Um, you know, it's a locally issue. Papillary thyroid cancers tend to spread within the neck itself to the, to the nodes. Uh, most people that have a cancer, um, they don't want to be continued to be surveilled with ultrasounds, with the possibility of repeat biopsies. Um, if you want to treat somebody with radioactive iodine ablation after surgery, it would not be possible if you kept a lobe. Um, it would only be possible if you did a total thyroid gland. If you want to measure their thyroglobulin level, you would have to remove the entire gland. You couldn't accurately measure thyroglobulin level with a lobe still there. So these are all the decisions that you would want to discuss with your patient regarding a surgical type of approach for it. As you had mentioned, being more aggressive means that if you remove the entire lobe, then you would have to take thyroid hormone, um, where if you only removed half of the thyroid gland, you have a good 80 to 85% chance that you would not require thyroid hormone. Okay. So the thyroid, even though it's only half there, could still function uh, potentially normally. Yes. Okay. And what's the recovery look like from a from a thyroid surgery? Let's you know either a partial or total. Yeah, pretty quick. I mean, a, a lot of you know, if I do a, say a, what you say a partial, just removing a thyroid lobe, that's an outpatient procedure um, where it takes me maybe an hour to do intraoperatively. Um, they're walking after surgery, swallowing. Pain is is manageable. Um, it's never, nothing's never pain-free. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say that most people are doing well one week after surgery, and they can get by with doing um, 
something of light activity at that point. Three weeks out after surgery, I have no restrictions on any of my patients. Okay. So it's a pretty pretty easy recovery. Yes, it is. For this. It is. And what about a total thyroidectomy? So the, the recovery time is about the same. Um, a couple of things you have to be concerned about, uh, thyroid surgery in general and, and a total thyroid. Uh, now you have to start monitoring some thyroid hormone levels. You know, half-life of the thyroid hormone is about three weeks. So you have three weeks to determine, you know, what you want to do with your thyroid hormone level after surgery. Um, now, even my practice is evolving um, uh, most of the time, people would stay 23-hour observation after that type of surgery and then go home the next day. Um, you have to worry a little bit about calcium level now. We didn't get into that at all, which is produced by the parathyroid glands. And when you do thyroid surgery, you have four of these little glands. Um, you have to be careful to make sure that their function is still good after a total thyroidectomy. So I measure calcium levels immediately after surgery when I do a total thyroid. And what I do is, uh, you know, I'll do these patients at 7.30 in the morning. I'll get them up in an observation room, and about half of them, even after a total thyroid, are now going home. As long as the calcium is stabilized, they're doing good. I have the ability to see them a little bit later on, uh, make sure that they're feeling well. They can, they can go home. They don't necessarily have to stay in the hospital either. And um, it does require thyroid hormone adjustments. You got to get that level right. So that takes some blood tests. But still, about three weeks regular activity. Okay, that's amazing. And then a little bit, um, if you could touch on on lymph nodes. Um, there are some lymph nodes in the neck, and we we most of us who deal with cancer or even know a little bit about cancer know that that's one of the areas that cancer can spread to. Sure. Um, how is that involved with the neck? Yeah, it's it's part of your workup for sure. Um, just as you're doing a thyroid ultrasound to look at the nodules in the thyroid itself, you should dedicate that ultrasound to look at the lymph nodes within the neck. And that's the central compartment of the neck, and it's also the different levels uh, lateral to the neck uh, that uh, potentially uh, the cancer could spread to, especially papillary. Um, so you would want to make sure that those uh, lymph nodes are of normal size and have normal architecture. So, you know, those size one centimeter, we're not going to touch. If they look normal, we're not going to touch them. But if they're 1.5, 2 centimeters in size, have some abnormal uh, ultrasound characteristics about them, then they should be biopsied. And if they're biopsy negative, biopsy positive now, now then you would add a net modified neck dissection along with your thyroid surgery. Okay. So removing the lymph nodes on that side right. would be part of the surgery. Right. So you mentioned, um, so your options are different if you leave part of the thyroid behind or if you take out the entire th thyroid. So let's say you take out the entire thyroid. Now someone like you said, has to be on thyroid replacement therapy. But there's a lot of other tests that you can use or do to, um, to follow 
what's going on with the patient. And and uh, one of those you mentioned was the radioactive uh, ablation. So maybe you can explain what, what that is. Right. So surgically, when you take out total thyroid uh, for either follicular neoplasm or, uh, you know, a, a large papillary thyroid carcinoma, there are other types of cancers, which we haven't mentioned, but those are the most two common. You remove the entire thyroid gland. You can't remove the microscopic disease necessarily all the time. And you're removing the entire thyroid gland as a surgeon and you do all your natural dissection in order to grossly remove that entire thyroid gland. But a lot of times you have microscopic cells left behind. And depending on um, your uh, stage of your thyroid cancer, um, the uh, radiation oncologist may want to give you radioactive iodine treatment. Um, that's becoming a little bit less popular today, um, especially in the stages one, two of your cancer. Um, uh, a lot of the times now the studies are showing you don't necessarily need radioactive iodine treatment. But those cancers that are larger um, start having some uh, angiolymphatic invasion um, inv invade some other structures around it. Those would be very classic examples of treating radioactive iodine. And then that would burn out any remaining thyroid tissue that you would have within the neck. Uh, so it would sort of clean things out so you would have no local problems. You could also use it uh, for those advanced cases as well if you run into the 4% chance of a papillary being a very bad actor going to the bone or lung or something. Radioactive iodine treatment could be very effective hmm. to ablate those lesions successfully. So it, it just kind of kills the the thyroid cells no matter where they are in the body. If they've spread or, right. or gone somewhere else, it'll still get those. Right. Interesting. So then, and then you can measure, let's say you take out the thyroid, you ablate the thyroid. We should have no remaining thyroid, hopefully, at that time. Right. So what are you measuring to see if, if things come back? Right. So again, that thyroglobulin level, as long as there's not thyroglobulin antibodies that are obscuring you, you can use that uh, to kind of follow if you have any growing uh, thyroid tissue and ultrasound. Uh, so you would, uh, you know, maybe on a yearly basis do an ultrasound of, of the neck um, to see whether or not there's some growth that is occurring um, or if you're, uh, uh, you're requiring less of thyroid replacement over time, um, you may have some growing thyroid tissue that's occurring in the neck that's uh, coming back that's active and is producing. It doesn't necessarily need to be cancer. It could be still normal. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, again, the thyroid function studies come into play to see how things are developing over time. Sure. Okay, well, we just have a few minutes left here, um, Dr. Muffalotto. Let's, um, you know, one thing we didn't touch on is potential risks for cancer or people that are at higher risk, or um, we can touch on that or any other any other subject you want here with the last two minutes. Yeah, so the, the risks of, of, you know, thyroid cancer would be, um, you know, environmental um, those, uh, let's just say those children that had radiation treatment for some reason uh, to the face or neck or had a lot of radiation exposure, 
um, a patient that was treated in the past for lymphoma, for mantle cell uh, kind of, uh, of lymphoma right with the radiation that included the neck, they would be at a high risk for developing, you know, a thyroid cancer. Um, uh, women in general are more common uh, uh, to have a, a thyroid cancer. Uh, you can have uh, some genetic predisposition. Uh, you know, we didn't go into some of the genetic predispositions of cancer. Uh, for example, the, um, the MENs, uh, endocrine neoplasia type symptoms, which within the thyroid would be a medullary cancer, which we didn't mention. Uh, but they have a cluster of kind of cancers with them that could affect the parathyroid gland and the adrenal gland and some other things. Uh, so if someone has an MEN type of 2, 2A or 2B type of uh, syndrome, uh, you would uh, definitely, let's just say if someone had a adrenal tumor, a pheochromocytoma, which is a tumor in itself, causes uh, hypertension at very high uh, life-threatening levels, you'd want to make sure that they don't have a medullary thyroid cancer because they would be grouped into that. Sure. And those are syndromes that yes. that we see. Okay. Well, with the last minute, um, uh, Dr. Muffaletto, if someone has a thyroid nodule or, or they're being worked up for one and they want to, um, or, you know, how would someone come to see you? Let's put it that way. Um, well, most of my patients would, uh, would come from an endocrinologist um, where uh, they specify in, you know, diabetic diabetes treatments and um, or internists or family practice doctors uh, that um, are the gatekeepers of our care. Uh, so they find out uh, from, you know, incidental imaging or something that now the person has a thyroid nodule. And, you know, our medical community is very, very good. So a lot of my patients are worked up very well, you know, with the ultrasound. Mm -hmm. They have the fine needle aspiration findings and the and the biological markers even before they get to me. Okay. Well, um, there is a link to Dr. Muffaletto's website on our website for those who want to check it out. Some really cool videos on there. Special thanks to our guest for being with us today. Thank you to our audio engineer, Tobin Shelby, and producer, Adeline Baxter. You can find more information on this and previous programs on our website at alaskapublic.org. Let us know your thoughts or suggestions by emailing us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. This has been Line 1, your health connection. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. Stay safe, Alaska. Line One is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.